Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on June 27th, 2021, during our Sunday morning worship service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 10.30 a.m., Sunday at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. Who here has ever played Mad Libs? I'm not talking about the game where you get on social media and you post something that make your liberal friends mad. I'm not talking about that game, okay? I've, I've played that game, all right? I don't play it as much as I used to, but... I'm not talking about that game. I'm talking about the kids game. You take a paragraph and a a little short story and you pull out the nouns, some of the nouns, some of the verbs, some of the proper names. And then you put different nouns in. You put different verbs in, different adjectives or adverbs. Of course, the catch is, and I'm, I'm sure most of us have played this game, But if you haven't, the catch to the game is that you don't know what the story is until you've replaced the words. You don't know what the nouns should be before you replace them with new nouns. You don't know what the verbs should be before you replace them with different verbs. And the hope of the game is that uh, you come up with a, a, a makeshift story that gives a kid a laugh. I used to like to play Mad Libs. I'm sure that I'll be playing them soon with my son. That's something I haven't done yet. The problem is when we play Mad Libs with the Bible. And there are many people, and and we all need to guard against this. We have our pet doctrine, our pet theology. Maybe it's something the Bible teaches. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something that was just invented by man. It's part of human tradition. And we see it everywhere. We plug it in to every text that we're in. We plug it in where it doesn't belong. And we read the text the way we want it to read without really paying attention to what it actually says. It's a very dangerous It's not just a bad habit, it's a dangerous habit that we can fall into. And in just a few moments, we're going to go from Romans 9 to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to see a place, as we've been seeing in this section, where this happens all the time. Romans chapter 11 is a battleground text, and it's interesting because on the one hand, many people who believe that God chooses people for salvation apart from free will, apart from uh, any choice of man, that God just chooses uh, you, 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 and you. This number of people I'm going to save and this number of people I'm going to create, but I'm not going to give them any opportunity or ability. I'm going to hold them responsible but not make them able to response. They go to Romans chapter 11, the first half of Romans chapter 11, to try to prove their position. At the same time, while this army is entrenched on this part of the battlefield, over on this part of the battlefield, there's another group 
who they believe that the second half of Romans 11 teaches and proves their position that you can lose your salvation. That God can forgive you of your sins, but then unforgive you of your sins. And they go to the second half of the chapter. Now, as somebody who is neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian, my goal today is to say, let's hear what Paul says. Let's not take our theologies, our man-made systems, and try to plug them into this text. Let's hear what the Apostle Paul says, because what I'm going to suggest to you is that Romans chapter 11 doesn't have anything to do with what Calvinists think it has to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with what Arminians think it has to do with. It has to do with what Romans 10 has to do with, and it has to do with what Romans 9 has to do with, which is God's promises to the nation of Israel. Now, I ask you to go with me to Romans chapter 9 because as we conclude, Lord willing, we'll be able to get through Romans chapter 11 today. There's four main ideas I want to show you from Romans chapter 11. But I want to remind you of this arc, this argumentation that Paul has put together from Romans 9, 10 through chapter 11, what Paul is actually talking about, what his whole purpose is. Because if we ignore his subject then we're going to reach a false conclusion. If we think Paul's talking about something that he's not talking about, then we're going to be playing Mad Libs with this text. And so listen again to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom present tense pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they children, but in Isaac thy seed shall be called. Now, in Romans chapter 9, as we begin, as we begin this uh, series within the series within the series, and we looked at uh, Paul's topic here about God's choosing the nation of Israel through whom... To send Messiah, Jesus Christ. And through whom to bless the world. We, we took time to go back to Genesis 12 a few weeks ago and look at the promise that God began to give to Abram and then expanded on and built on in promises made to Isaac and to Jacob. And then in Genesis 49, Jacob prophesying Israel, prophesying over the sons of Israel and the promises made to them and then continued through the giving of the law through uh, Moses the prophet and then continued giving uh, promises to David the prophet king and ultimately promises made to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, Jesus Christ himself, our Savior. These promises have not failed. God has not broken his promises, the promises that he made to his son. And so in Romans chapter 9, we began to look at Paul's defense and explanation of 
the election of Israel. God's choosing Israel. Remember, Jesus Christ, Isaiah tells us, is the chosen one. He is the elect one, the righteous servant. And His people, the children of Israel, are the chosen people. The elect nation. Not chosen for salvation, but chosen for service. Chosen for blessing. Chosen to receive the promises that God has made. And, and Paul very clearly argued that God is not unrighteous. His promises have not failed. He's not unrighteous in selecting Israel based on his power and right to choose. He shows that in the choice of Isaac, who was miraculously conceived. It wasn't man's idea. It wasn't man's, within man's ability to do this. It was in God's power, in God's sovereign choice to choose Isaac through whom to send Messiah over Ishmael. It was God's sovereign prenatal choice of Jacob over Israel, not to save, but through whom to send Messiah, through whom to keep the covenant, through whom to keep the promises of God, not based on anything that they did, but based on God's sovereign choice. Because, listen, Jacob and Esau could not both be the ancestor of Jesus. Only one of them could be the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So the promise had to be given to one of them. God chose Jacob. Likewise, we saw in chapter 9 that God is not unfair in His plan to first judge and destroy Israel and then to redeem them. In fact, it was prophesied in Jeremiah 18. It was prophesied in Hosea. It was prophesied in Isaiah 10. And in many other places, those are just the three that Paul cites because God is Israel's potter. God is Israel's Redeemer. God is their husband, and He can do what He chooses to do. Then from Romans 9, we went into Romans chapter 10, and, and Paul there explained that Israel failed to receive the gospel not because God abandoned them, but because they abandoned God because of their fanaticism. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were driven by emotion. Uh, Proverbs tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death and destruction. It's not whether you feel good about a decision. It's, it's whether it's God's will. It's whether it's God's leading. And God in His will and in His leading gives us the ability to obey or disobey. Paul also went on to explain that not only did they have fanaticism, they had self-righteousness. They were trying to achieve the promises of God by their own goodness and their righteousness. And of course, that led them to prejudice as well. And so they failed to accept their Messiah. They failed to be the light to the world. And so now Paul says, we as the church of Jesus Christ have inherited that noble cause. The greatest mission. You want your life to be significant, you want your life to matter, to count, give your life to the service of the Great Commission. And that doesn't mean that we all go to some other world. We are missionaries right here where God has planted us. We shine the light of God's gospel by sharing with people in word that Jesus Christ died for their sins, that we're all sinners that we're all separated from God because of our sin, but that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shed His blood to pay for our sin. The sinless, perfect Son of God became a man to die for us on the cross. And because 
He was sinless. And because God accepted His sacrifice, according to the Scriptures, on the third day, He rose from the dead. He's alive forevermore. He is able to save all who call upon Him for salvation. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner and trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven. The only way to the Father. And His death pays for your sin. And His life secures your eternal life and your salvation. That's the message. We share it verbally, Paul says. We also share it in how we live. Because if I tell somebody that, but then I don't live that way, and none of us are perfect, of course. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. God knows we're not perfect. It's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, listen, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but I know that you're going to so that if you, so that if you do sin, you know that we have the advocate, the high priest. And he gave himself for our sin, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so we have this mission to spread the gospel in evangelism, to support those who are called to go and to pray for them and to, and to be the light that God has called us to be. Paul reminds us that there's a decision to be made. We have to call people to that decision. There's a Savior to be believed. We have to tell people about Jesus. There's a message to be heard. We have to share the gospel and there's the mission to be accepted. That's not going to happen if we just show up on Sundays and sit and soak and don't serve and don't speak and don't shine. But as we take that mission, Paul reminds us in chapter 10 that we're dependent on God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's not how clever we are. It's not how uh, uh, great a communicator we are. Some of you are more extroverted. Some of you are more introverted. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the Word of God. It's not in you. It's the Holy Spirit working through you, but it doesn't originate from you. Also, Paul tells us our success will be limited. God gives people the opportunity and the ability to reject the gospel. And as simple as it is, and as grace-filled as it is, and as wonderful as it is, Paul tell the, tells the Corinthians, listen, your message to some people, it's going to be the sweetest smelling savor, but to others... When you share with them that they're a sinner, they're going to go stench of death. I don't want to smell that message. I don't, want anywhere, I don't want that message anywhere near me. And that is on them. Your job is not to get people saved. Your job is to be a light. Your job is to be the light and to be part of the, the gospel mission. We're dependent on God's word. Our success will be limited. And knowledge, Paul warns, increases accountability. Now, with all of that as refresher, let's go to chapter 11 and let's see how far we get today. The election of grace, Israel's destiny, that's what the subject of chapter 11 is all about. I want to show you four things today about Israel's destiny and as it relates to what Paul calls the election of grace. The first thing that I want to show you from this text is in verses 1 through 10. And I want to reiterate, I'm going to, I'm going to hammer on this nail because Paul is hammering on this nail. And the reason, that if, if it sounds like um, we're talking ad nauseum here, 
It's because Paul is continually, continually, continually stressing this point. Nevertheless, people still miss the message. Christians still miss the message because they play Mad Libs with the Bible and they think this is about something completely opposite of what Paul says it's about. That's why Paul keeps repeating himself. It's why Paul is so passionate about this point. Number one, Israel's place in God's plan is secure. Israel's place in God's plan is secure. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid. Meganoito, may it never be. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away His people, which He foreknew. What ye not when the Scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. And dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, not as a whole, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it was written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their backs. All way. Israel's place in God's plan is secure. Paul gives us three reasons in those ten verses that we read. Number one, because God's faithfulness secures it. God's faithfulness secures it. It's not their works. It's not because they deserve it. It's because God is faithful. And Paul uses himself as the first evidence Paul does not say God has not abandoned Israel because the church is Israel. He does not say that. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. We are not Israel. The church is not Israel. There are some people who want to say that the church is Israel and that all of the blessings of Israel fall on the church and all of the curses of Israel fall on the nation. That's not what Paul says here or anywhere. Paul's evidence that God has not forsaken the nation of Israel is himself, his apostleship, the fact that he is an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet he is an Israelite, and he is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he is evidence himself that God has remained faithful to the nation of Israel. He's going to expand on that point in just a moment. Number one, God's faithfulness secures Israel's place in God's plan. Number two, God's foreknowledge confirms it. God's foreknowledge confirms it. Now remember, the word foreknowledge simply means to know beforehand. That's the way Paul uses it in the book of Acts when he's standing before Festus and he says, the, the Jews who hated me before I got there they had foreknowledge of me. They 
knew all about me. They knew me by reputation. They knew me beforehand. It's how the Apostle Peter uses the word foreknowledge when he says to us that we as Christians have foreknowledge of the end times. We know what's coming. We know the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. We know the dead in Christ will rise first and that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We know that judgment is coming on this world after we're gone. We know many of, uh, of the aspects of that judgment. We read through the book of Revelation and we see time and time again that God gives us foreknowledge of the future. That doesn't mean we have anything to do with choosing it. It doesn't mean that we have anything to do with planning it. It means that we know about it. And that's simply what the word foreknowledge means. And so when Paul says that God foreknew these people, and then he cites 1 Kings 18, which hopefully is familiar to you if you've been here, because we were in 1 Kings 18 just a few months ago when we studied the ministry of Elijah. God has known Israel from the beginning. Their unbelief is no shock to him. He's been dealing with it from the beginning. He dealt with it for 40 years in the wilderness. He dealt with it through the times of the judges. He dealt with it through the times of the kings and the, and the uh, sending of the prophets. He's been dealing with Israel's rebellion and unbelief for thousands of years and Paul is simply saying when he uses, don't make the word mean more than it means. <laughs> don't change the meaning of the word. Simply read it for what it says. God has foreknowledge. God has been experiencing from before this time, God, Paul says. Listen, this is nothing new to God. He's been experiencing Israel's rejection, the majority of Israel's rejection, for hundreds, now thousands of years and the testimony there is the testimony that God himself gave to the prophet Elijah remember when Elijah was frustrated and 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 fearful because he had this great victory on Mount Carmel and then he woke up the next day and Queen Jezebel was still on the throne and she was hunting his life and he was expecting as he saw this uh, this great moving of God when God sent fire down from heaven and, and he woke up and he thought everything was going to be good and 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 that all the enemies of God were going to be scattered and he woke up the next day and he found out the enemies of God didn't go anywhere yet and he got discouraged and he ran and he asked God to he's got so depressed he said God just I, just take me home I don't I don't want to be here anymore and he was so discouraged because of the rebellion of the people of Israel and he wanted God to judge him and, and God essentially said he was going to judge them but understand that I've reserved seven thousand knees who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal and that brings us to the third thing not only does God's faithfulness secure Israel's place in his plan not only does his foreknowledge confirm it but his favor completes it the word grace literally means favor charis in Greek the favor of God often translated as grace sometimes translated as gift, 
We talk about the spiritual gifts of God. Grace, God's grace is not just something you need to get saved. It's something that we need as believers. It's something that we need if we're going to serve Him. Uh, the word for spiritual gift comes from this Greek word. And so God's favor completes it. And God's favor, Paul says in verses 5 through 10, is found in His honoring the faith of what Paul calls the remnant. Now let me share three quick things about this remnant that God reveals to us in these verses. Number one, God always reserves the remnant. God is always faithful to the remnant. He reserves them. Now, what does the word reserve really mean? I want to suggest to you that this word means the exact opposite of what you may have been taught that it means. In fact, as I was studying this this week, I realized that I didn't really understand what this word meant until I took the time to actually look at the original language. But reserve in Hebrew and reserve in Greek mean essentially the exact same thing. And so whether it was God speaking directly to Elijah or speaking directly to us through the Apostle Paul, it means the exact same thing. It means to remain, to be left, to leave behind. When God says that He reserved 7,000, He's not saying, I picked them out and chose them and left everybody else. He's saying, I picked and chose everybody else and I left them. What did He pick and choose everybody else for? Not salvation. For judgment. You remember? We were in uh, 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 1 Kings chapter 18 a few months ago. God said, I'm going to send a sword. In fact, I'm going to send three swords. And who the one king doesn't get, the next king doesn't get, and who that king doesn't get, Elisha's going to get, and I'm going to take care of all this wickedness, and I'm going to wipe the slate clean. But don't, don't get it all mixed up, Elijah. I have not given up on Israel. In fact, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal that I'm going to leave out of that judgment. God's not talking about picking and choosing the 7,000 that He was going to save eternally before the foundation of the world to choose that they have no choice in getting saved. He said, I'm going to save, I'm going to reserve these 7,000, I'm going to save them from judgment because of their faith in Me. God is not speaking here of reserving sinners unto salvation. Quite the opposite, but of reserving believers from falling into judgment. Now, the second thing I want to show you, not only does God reserve the remnant, but the remnant is, notice, quote, according to the election of grace. The choosing of grace. He is not here saying that they are chosen to receive grace. He's saying they are chosen because they already have God's grace. Because they have not bowed the knee to Baal, they bowed the knee to me. And because they have humbled themselves, what does God tell us? You can have God's grace. You just have to do one thing. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you will humble yourself and recognize that you're a sinner, that's not works. Paul says that's not works. It's not works to admit you're a sinner. 
It's not works to place your faith in Jesus Christ. There are some Christians who say, well, that's, that's salvation by works if you need faith. Well, God says it's not. You don't get to change God's definition. If God says faith is not works, if God says admitting you need God's grace is not works, then you don't get to call it a work. It's simply admitting that you don't have works. I don't deserve this. I haven't earned forgiveness of sin. I haven't earned salvation. That's humility. And that's what's required of you to be saved. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 to the apostles, the 11 apostles who remained after Judas' betrayal, he said, guys, you're going to go out and you're going to spread the gospel. And part of that gospel is to tell people that they need to repent of their sins. There's a tremendous amount of preaching today that is repentance-less preaching. And people do not get saved if they don't understand what Jesus is saving them from. How can you understand and call him that is called Jesus your Savior if you don't understand what he's saving you from? He's saving you from your sin. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. And as much evidence as we have thousands and thousands of years of human experience, we still don't want to admit it. I still don't want to admit I'm a sinner. I still don't want to admit when I make a mistake. I, don't, I still don't want to admit. But listen, when I receive God's grace by faith, I am chosen. Remember we saw, it's been a, a little bit ago now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, in Christ, you're chosen. He does not say, you're chosen to be in Christ. We don't get to add words to the Bible. But he says that when you are in Christ, you're chosen. You want to be chosen by God? Come to Jesus Christ. You want to be able to say that God chose me? Hey, repent of your sin. Place your faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness, for your eternal life. You are in Christ. You are chosen. You can be chosen today if you're not chosen yet. And that's true for every single person within the sound of my voice. This remnant is according to the election of grace. Notice this third thing also. God promised to harden unrepentant Israel. God warned them. God's known about them a long time. It's why he gave them so many warnings. So many warnings not to harden their hearts. And they did it anyways. Those who pursued God via fanaticism, they had a zeal for God not according to knowledge. Their self-righteousness kept them from accepting Jesus as their Savior because they didn't want to admit they needed His righteousness. Their prejudice, thinking that just because of, of uh, who their father was, who their mother was, because they're from the line of Abraham, that they're more special to God than anybody else. God hardened their heart. God hardened their heart. He blinded them. Notice they weren't blinded yet. They weren't hardened yet. They weren't born hardened. They weren't born blinded. They were able to be able to receive their Messiah when He came, but they chose not to. And so after their free moral agency was exercised, God hardened their heart. He blinded their eyes. It's why Matthew 13 tells us Jesus began to speak to them in parables. We talked about this a few Sunday nights ago. God's prophecies and parables. And, and the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why, don't, why, are you talking to, uh, why are you telling stories? Why are you talking in parables? Jesus said, I'm talking in parables 
because they had a chance to receive me. The Old Testament tells them exactly when to the very day I would be crucified in Daniel chapter 9. The Old Testament tells them exactly where I would be born in Bethlehem, in Micah. The Bible tells them exactly how I would be born, not only in Genesis 3.15, but in Isaiah chapter 7, that I would be born of a virgin. They mocked my mother and father. They rejected me even when the kings from the east came to worship me because of the star. I, I gave them an astrological sign, an astronomical sign, excuse me. I gave them this, this star that showed them, hey, Messiah's here. They still rejected me. So Jesus said, we're done. We're done. You've had your chances. You've been given the message. And now you've chosen to harden your heart. So God said, I'm going to harden your heart too. And it's why Jesus spoke in parables and it was prophesied. Paul here quotes Isaiah. He quotes Psalm 69. Uh, David writing in Psalm 69, 22 through 23. Nevertheless, despite the hardening of Israel, there is a small amount of Israelites. Even to this day, there remaineth the election of grace. Those Jews by birth who have not trusted in their Jewishness, have not trusted in their birthright of being the children of Abraham, but who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Not their works, but His works that have been saved. And there is an Israel today that has repented. Small. A very small minority of Israel. Yet it remains. Even to this day, there are men and women, brothers and sisters in Israel, worshiping Jesus the Messiah today as a testimony to God's faithfulness to Israel. Israel's place in God's plan is secure. Number two, I want to show you this. Israel's fall has a purpose. Israel's fall has a purpose. Why does God let us fall? Well, He lets us fall because He created us as free moral agents, but even then... God has a way of using our fall to do something good. All things work together for good. We know that. We know that, Paul says. You already know that all things work together to, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And God allows the sins of others. Remember what uh, Joseph said to his brothers after their father died and his brothers were... Uh, were afraid that Joseph was going to take out his revenge. And Joseph called him together. He said, guys, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And God used your sin to do something great for our children and their ch our children's children. And God's going to do something good. Israel's fall has a purpose. We'll unpack this next week. We'll, we'll finish up this up next week but I, I want to show you just part of this today before we go because what God allows he uses we don't understand why God allows what he allows we think if I was God I wouldn't let that person do that if I was God I wouldn't let that happen well friend if God's not going to allow it ever that would mean that he created a world without free moral agency, that we're all just cogs in a machine, that love is just an illusion, 
We love God because we're forced to. We, we're just playing out a script that God wrote. That's not the God of the Bible. I know that there are many people who tell you it is. It is not. Salvation has come unto the Gentiles because of Israel's fall. Look at this. We're just going to look at verses 11 through 17 before we close. I just want to make one point here before we close. And it's this. What Israel now rejects, their Messiah, access to the promises of God through Messiah Jesus, the world may now receive. What Israel rejects today, you get to receive as a Gentile, if you're a Gentile, which is, I think, most of us, if not all of us here today, maybe not all of us, but most of us. Listen to what Paul says in verses 11 through 17. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall, meaning in the verb tense, that they should stay down? Have they stumbled that they should never rise again, is really what he's saying here. And again, God forbid. Meganoito, may it never be, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Paul says, they're not beyond salvation. Even though God has blinded them for a time, it doesn't mean He has damned them. Even though God has hardened them for a season so that they may suffer because of their rejection, it doesn't mean that I've damned them forever. I am praying, Paul says, that even though they have stumbled, and even though they have fallen, and even though God has blinded them and hardened their hearts, that they might be saved through the mission that God is sending to the whole world. God has not forsaken His people. And then in verse 16, he says, which we'll talk about next week, if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root beareth thee. Now we'll come back to this idea of the olive tree next week. But guys, here's the great thing. We talked about this last, last week, Romans chapter 10. Israel failed in their mission to be a light to the world. You and I are now the light of the world. You and I are the light of the world. There are times when we can't see because, the, because our life is dark, our circumstances are dark. We need to trust the promises of God. We need to remember God's faithfulness even to unrighteous Israel. And God will be faithful to us too. But here's what I want to leave you with today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not without light. You're surrounded by people who are. They have no hope. Some of them don't know that they don't have hope. Some of them think that they have hope. 
but there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. They have no hope. You must be their light. Not in yourself, not in your goodness, not in your wisdom, but in shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In speaking it, in living it, you get to be the lighthouse of Jesus Christ because He lives inside of you. Paul said this is a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit will work through you. You don't have to worry about getting all the words in the perfect order. You don't have to worry about being a sinless example. None of us are sinless. None of us are perfect. I stumble over my words every Sunday. The light is the gospel the light is Jesus Christ, and He lives inside of you if you're a child of God. And you can be that light of hope. You can't make them follow the light of Jesus Christ, but you can shine the light. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, don't hide your light. Don't hide your light. And if we get together as lights, Jesus said it's like a city on a hill. You drive on the interstate at night, you come up on a town, you see all those lights. Now, we, now the lights are in the valley, right? But in Jesus' day, they're up on the hill. We're that city. We're that city when we shine the light together. We can be the messenger of hope. Not that the hope's in us. The hope's in Him. But we get to shine that light to the world. We'll finish this, Lord willing, next Sunday. We'll finish chapter 11. Israel's place in God's plan is secure. God has a purpose for their fall. Part of that purpose is to use you to be the light to the world. Father, thank you for the awesome, awesome privilege, God. A privilege that we get so nervous about and we get so skittish about. And God, we don't want to be the light you've called us to be. God, it is certainly true that none of us are sinless none of us are worthy of that calling that you have placed on every believer's life god to be the light of the world but god i pray that as we are reminded of your grace to us and your love of us and your forgiveness of us god that we would be re-energized and recommitted to sharing that love and sharing that light with a dark dark world father if there's somebody here they're they're in darkness They've never repented of their sin. They've never trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven and the only way to have eternal life. God, I pray this would be the day when they would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We're so thankful, God, for the six kids who made that decision this week. And God, we pray fruitfulness for their life. But God, we, we know that there are others. We know there are others who need to make that decision. God, I pray they would not put off till tomorrow when tomorrow may never come. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.